I want to say uh, thanks to Ken for being here with us today. Uh, we sort of had a scramble a little bit in the middle of the week to find someone to fill in. Uh, Megan did text me, I think it was on Thursday, saying, uh, Bryce, I think I'm okay. Uh, if I have a contraction, I'll just pause. <laughs> Which I felt was entirely unnecessary, but then again, I thought it would be sort of entertaining for Megan to be playing the piano and all of a sudden just go, boom, like in the middle of something. You can't have everything, you know, it's just, you got to make choices sometimes. So Ken, we are so grateful that you are here with us today. Uh, all of us at one time or another have had a moment or several moments where we have experienced what I am going to call this morning a reality check. Uh, a reality check, as I'm defining it today, is that moment where you realize that things are not maybe what you thought they were. Uh, and I don't mean like discovering when you were a kid, discovering what gravity was and learning that you couldn't actually fly, although that is sort of a life-changing moment. But what I have in mind are those moments we experience as sometimes as teenagers or as adults when you realize something, and upon making that realization, you begin to understand how the world actually is. And you know that after realizing that, that things may never be the same or go back to the way they were before. For example, I have been married to my beautiful wife for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in August. And uh, back when we got married almost 20 years ago, I wanted to get married. I loved Nisha very much, and as a matter of fact, I still do. Um, but on my wedding day, uh, they made this video of Nisha and I, and it was us growing up, and so we had like 300 people at our wedding. Uh, the lights were down. My mother and I were standing at the back of the auditorium because I was going to walk her down as soon as this video was over. Um, and all of a sudden, just out of the blue, I broke out in a sweat, like from the top of my head to my toenails. I just broke out in this awful sweat, um, and I realized in that moment that I was going to get married, <laughs> like, like for real. This was happening. All these people were there to watch me get married to Nisha, and uh, as much as I was excited about it, the reality of how much my life was going to change hit me all of a sudden, and I thought I was going to throw up. But don't worry, my 65-year-old, 5'4 arthritic mother helps me get down the aisle and safely delivered me to the front. Life is full of moments like this. Some of these moments are big, uh, some are small. Uh, a smaller one, for example, you know, my son Zeke is getting uh, his first reality check sort of at this moment. He is just turned 15, as some of you know, which means that next year he'll turn 16, and he wants a car. Uh, what he really wants is a car with flippy lights, but, you know, well, I know, we'll talk about that later. Um, so he has started pricing cars, and he is now realizing how expensive cars are, and he hasn't even yet been in introduced to the idea of insurance or paying $60 for a tank of gas if you're lucky. But then it's a reality check moment for him. And, and, and at the same time, I can remember holding Zeke for the first time right after he was born 15 years ago 
And for my money, there is no bigger reality check than holding a brand new life in your arms and thinking, holy smokes, what do I do now? (laughs) Reality checks can be good, but they're not always good. They can often be challenging and difficult, and sometimes we don't want to accept what reality has to tell us. We would prefer to live in our unenlightened state, if you will. Often, uh, we like things how they were before reality set in, and sometimes we reject reality in search of how we think things should be. Well, it can't be like this, or it shouldn't be like this, and so in these moments, we have, we sometimes struggle, right, with how we want things to be versus how things really are and, and, and what we do in that moment. Now, I have a particular struggle that I have been dealing with for like the past two years. And in terms of an idea and some things that I'm just trying to understand and know how to digest. And in particular, my struggle over the last few years is regarding the state of the church and what the church should be. Now, I want to be clear that I don't mean our church necessarily. Um, For the sake of this conversation, when I say church, I mean specifically the church in America. I read a lot of news every day um, because it just helps me have ideas and understand what's going on in the world and from all different kinds of sources. And something that I want to share with you this morning is that over the last two years, the American church has a voice. That voice may not be my voice or your voice, but there are things happening in news stories every day where people in positions of influence speak up and say and and speak God's name into something and, and tie God to different ideas. And so for me, what I have particularly struggled with over the last probably like two to three years is the way that faith or God or church or Jesus has been tied to other ideas like liberty or freedom or personal rights. Now, on this day of all days, 4th of July, we celebrate the liberty and freedom that we have and we are blessed to have the freedom and rights that we have as Americans. But I just have to be honest with you about this, okay? So you don't have to agree with me on this. And you know what I always say, you don't have to agree with me, but you're wrong. No, 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 like, I'm not going to say that today. I'm not even thinking it. I personally struggle to find the connection between freedom and liberty and rights and Jesus. I just, I have a hard time with that. And I struggle with how certain like rights or ideas or freedoms or liberties have been lumped into this thing, which I don't know what to call, and God is a part of it. And I wonder, I honestly wonder, for those outside the church who don't have a relationship with Jesus, what do they think when they see God lumped into this thing? Let me just give you, for me, one of the weirdest examples of this. I think it's weird. Other people understand it, and that's fine. But I think it's weird. I have never believed that as a Christian, I have a right given to me by God to own a gun. 
I just have never made that connection. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? I'm not saying that people should or shouldn't own guns. That's not the point. The point is, I don't know what owning a gun has to do with God. And what I struggle with is that some who represent the church in the public voice have tied freedom, faith, and owning a gun together as if this is part of their who I am in Jesus identity. There are more examples I can give, but I don't want to get bogged down in those things, and I don't want your brain to shut off because now you're worried about what Bryce is going to say you can or cannot do. That's not the point. So here's the core question I want us to consider this morning. Okay? So just let's, let's narrow in on this question. What do liberty, freedom, or our own rights, as we understand these things as Americans, have to do with the spread of the gospel? What do they have to do with Jesus? Now, why is this a relevant question to us this morning? It's relevant because the group of early Christians that we have been following in the book of Acts were about to get a pretty harsh reality check. And if we were to get this reality check, I dare say that our response to this reality would be one of trying our very hardest to reject it. But we see something really different happen with them. So here is the scene. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 5. The first four chapters of Acts have been a miraculous journey for the early Christians. They were powered by the Holy Spirit. God was alive and active in them. They had gifts They could speak in different languages. At least initially, they were able to heal those that they met. They were able to speak with power and authority even when they were challenged uh, by the powers that be. They were able to be bold in the face of opposition. It was truly a miraculous time. And because of all these things, because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the boldness of the apostles... The word about Jesus was getting out there, and thousands of people were responding. It was a dynamic time, and the Spirit was really transforming the lives of many through their belief in Jesus. And you know the the descriptions that we've read, that they had all things in common, even going so far as, as to sell their possessions to take care of the needs of those around them. And it seemed, as we said last week, that, that things were were just really sailing smoothly. Like even when, when Peter and John were arrested, like it, it ended up not being such a big deal. Like they were confronted and they left and they went out to preach the gospel some more. And then there was what we covered last week, the dramatic happening with Ananias and Sapphira, where their dishonesty threatened to undo the unity of the community. And so God acted by removing them from the situation. And though there was fear, this did not drive people away from the community. Instead, the community continued to grow and be a dynamic place. From Acts chapter 5, starting in verses 12, well, 12 through 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. 
As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on, the, on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Okay, church, this is a funky paragraph here, because there are a lot of things that are happening. Number one is that the Holy Spirit continued to move in a dynamic way in this community. And we see that manifest in several different things. Number one, people are still coming to know and understand Jesus. Two, there is the belief that if even Peter's shadow falls on someone who is sick, that the power of God might be relayed to them somehow through that moment. And it's clear in this passage that besides that miraculous thing, that the apostles are healing lots of people, so much so that people are trucking in their sick from outside so that the apostles could heal them. But there is this weird sentence in there. Verse 13, no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. So all these miraculous things are happening, and again, where are the apostles doing all of these things? Do you remember? Not only in Jerusalem, but in the temple. And so what is starting to happen? People are starting to be afraid to publicly join them. Now, there's not an explanation given for this yet. But people are starting to be cautious. But even though people are being cautious, are they still growing? Yes, a lot. But people are starting to recognize something, that joining this Christian movement, while it is tying you to something powerful and dynamic that God is doing, there is also a risk involved in doing so. Now, one of the things that I see when I look at this is that Luke wanted the description to remind us of something. This work that the apostles are doing, this miraculous healing and these crowds gathering and all these people coming to believe, it sounds an awful lot like this guy whose name starts with a J and rhymes with Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, the disciples of John the Baptist had come asking Jesus a question. John's disciples told him, about all these things, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's important to Luke as he tells the story in Acts that we see the power of Jesus and what Jesus did reflected in the work of the apostles. After all, Jesus, when he was here, was doing the work of God. And when he took the news out to the world about the kingdom of God coming to this place, that news, that good news that Jesus had to share was always accompanied by power. 
by healing, by, by driving out demons, by, by changing the lives of those who were oppressed. And so when Luke describes this new church in Acts, guess what? They are taking the gospel out, but they are doing these same things that Jesus did through the same power of God. And these are big things, right? These healings, and now people are coming from out of town to be healed, and, and the crowds are growing, and people are responding to who Jesus is. And all of this drew the attention of the ruling class who acted to stop this from going any further. So picking up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now, again, Peter and John had been arrested before, and when they were arrested before, they weren't sent to jail. They were, they were brought before the Sanhedrin, before the ruling council, and they were challenged about this message. Where did it come from? And they were told not to speak about Jesus anymore, and they answered back by saying, in essence, we're not going to listen to you because you're just a bunch of men. We're going to do what God is telling us to do. And they were warned, don't speak about Jesus, but they were released at that time. So this time is different, you see, because now we're told that the, those in charge, that they were filled with jealousy. Jealousy about what? That these apostles were becoming so influential and that the message of Jesus was being spread far and wide. So this time they arrested them, all the apostles, and they threw them into jail to wait for trial the next day. And that is when God busted them out. Now, why did God bust them out of jail? Was it to prove a point? What's that? They weren't guilty. There's one, there's one main reason why God busted them out of jail. So that they could get out, and the angel tells them, what does he tell them to do? Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. They are broken out of jail for a reason. And you're going to get used to this. You should already know this just based on the study we've done by four, before this. Why does the Spirit move and what does it empower them to do? It is always to spread the gospel. Always. So he does not break them out of jail to prove a point. He does not break them out of jail to see, look, they're right and you're wrong. They were busted out of jail so that they could go right back to the temple courts where they had just been arrested and tell people about this new life, to talk about Jesus. Now, not surprisingly, this kind of escalated the situation a little bit. The guards were confused about how they got out. No one can really answer these questions, and they're like, so where did they go? And it's like, in my head, I imagine them looking out the window. <laughs> it's like, oh, they're right there. Well, what are they doing? 
They're preaching about Jesus. So let's pick it up in verse 33. When they heard this, this being the Sadducees, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Okay, now things are getting serious, okay? But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. He addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the sentence, or census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So you see what happens here. Like They see them in the temple courts, and I, I, I skipped this part of it, so forgive me. They arrested them again brought them back in, challenged them again. The disciples gave them the same message. We're not going to listen to men, we're going to listen to God. And the reaction that they have to this is that they want to kill them. Why? Because they can't control them. And if they can't control them, then they can't control what's going on. And Gamaliel, who is not a Sadducee, he's a Pharisee. So, The Sadducees, as you know, were a group of people who followed God. They were in charge of the temple, and they helped facilitate worship between God and his people. And therefore, they were a part of the Sanhedrin, sort of the ruling council that would make judgments in these kinds of cases. But the Sadducees were also concerned with power. They understood Israel was under Roman rule, and they wanted to maintain peace with Rome, as well as whatever control they could keep over their own people. But it wasn't just Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. Guys like Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, who was a teacher of the law, and was very influential, was a part of this. And I'm glad we have these words from Gamaliel. Because he gave a simple but profound statement as to what they should do, and people listened to him. Number one, he said, look, other movements have risen and gone nowhere. So if this is something fake, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to die. Now, he mentions someone who had 400 followers. I mean, the, the apostles already have thousands. Um, but number two, he says, if this, is, if, if this is not from God, then it will fail. However, if it is from God, then guess what? You're not going to find yourself fighting these apostles. You're going to find yourself fighting God. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop this. So he won them over, but they still flogged the apostles uh, as a punishment and told them not to speak about Jesus anymore. Now, the flogging was a pretty big deal. It echoes actually exactly what Jesus went through when he was on trial. Uh, It referred to the customary punishment used as a warning not to persist. It consisted of 39 lashes, which was often referred to as 40 less one, uh, based on the provision uh, for 40 stripes given in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3. 
And the practice had developed of only giving 39 and not uh, 40 because um, they, they were worried that if you went to 40, you might kill the person. And so it's better to be on the safe side and shoot a little lower. That way they wouldn't die. But people did die from this punishment. Um, they had to be in a kneeling position, stripped to the waist, um, and were beaten with straps across both the chest and the back. So you have people that are terrified about the gospel spreading, but the gospel's still spreading. And you have people in the world that don't know, that see the threat, and they want to respond to the gospel, and they are responding to the gospel, but they're seeing what's happening here. And then you have the apostles uh, being taken in as a whole group, as, as the leaders, and, and they are beaten. And when, there's no way to hide that this happened to you, by the way. Like, you're beaten so badly that everyone's going to know you were beaten this badly. Now, we look at this part of the story, and I think this is something that is so difficult for us to grasp, because probably, as American Christians, we think to ourselves, this never should have happened. This is awful, this is terrible, and people suffering uh, for the sake of Christ or for the name of Jesus, like God God shouldn't allow this to happen to them because we have an idea ourselves, right, that this is not what it means to be a person of faith, that, that these kinds of things shouldn't happen to those who belong to Jesus. And so if we were to write the next section, the response of the apostles to all of this going on, it would be the apostles going back to a quiet room and praying to God to deliver them from their enemies and to restore them and to make them victorious over those who would stand against them. That who they are as Christians would be held up and affirmed. Because this is the way that we view the world. Think about all the things over the last two years that we have fought over in terms of what our rights are. Masks, vaccines, social distancing, all these things, which has turned into all these other things about all these other things. Which is why the response of the apostles makes me question everything. I have to be honest with you. Because here's what is truly shocking about their response. Well, let's just read it. Verses 41 through 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles were beaten because they were preaching the gospel. And their response was to be grateful that they had been given the chance to be beaten for the sake of the gospel. Because, and this is the humbling part of it, 
they understood that when they were beaten, they were experiencing the same thing that Jesus experienced. And if they were experiencing the same thing that Jesus experienced, then they were on the right track. They did not complain. They did not ask God why they would have to suffer unjustly and said they understood that taking the gospel to the world was going to put them in harm's way. These men and women who had seen Jesus be beaten, tortured, and crucified. And therefore, when they suffered and when they hurt, they were imitating Christ. They were imitating Christ. So, what do we learn from all of these transitional things that happen in this chapter? Number one, God is capable of doing amazing things even if circumstances are bad or things are stacked against his people. One of the most remarkable things about this story, church, is that we are often so afraid of opposition, and what we see in the book of Acts over and over again is that God overcomes opposition. And maybe not in the way that we think he will or should, but the gospel and the people who are taking the gospel to the world are being directly threatened, and they are growing every day. Because their job, as they understand it, is to take the gospel to the world, and so they do it. They get arrested, they go back out and do it again. They get out of jail, they go back out and do it again. They get beaten, what do they do? They go back out and do it again. Why? Because the message of Jesus has to go out. And it is bigger than whatever's happening to them. It's bigger than whatever's happening to them. And that's the thing, is that these amazing things that are happening, they always contribute to the spreading of the gospel. The point is that the gospel must go out. People must hear about Jesus. And that's what they are responding to, church. It's not the acts of power, and it's not just the boldness of the apostles. They are responding to the gospel itself, that God sent his son to this world to die for all of humanity that we were lost in our sin. But Jesus offers us the grace and forgiveness of God that we might live forever with him. And people are hearing that from these men and women who are being beaten and tortured and arrested and they say, it must be true that God loves me like this. A sobering realization is this, that even if we want to be on God's side, we are not always good at agreeing on what God is actually doing. It's easy to vilify the Sanhedrin or the Sadducees or the Pharisees, but we see something in Gamaliel's words, right? Which is, he doesn't want to stand against God. So let's see how this plays out and see where God is but we're going to see very soon the impatience of those who feel threatened. And lastly, if you are going to follow the path of Jesus, it is a path of sacrifice and suffering. It is going to ask you to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. But if you grasp the wonder of the gospel and the new life that God has offered, there is great joy. After all, Jesus, though he was a son of God, gave up 
all of his power, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, so that he could be like us to offer us a way to God. And while he was here on the earth, he never tried to sit in the seats of power, even though as the Son of God, he could have claimed them in a moment. Instead, he lived homeless, serving those who had nothing, healing those who were sick, spreading the news that the kingdom of God is here and changing the world because of it. This has always been the case for those who follow Jesus. That the path is one of sacrifice and suffering. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 24, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on that third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. This is the path that this early church was on. And we're about to see someone lose his life for the sake of speaking the gospel. And so we take all of this and let's go back to the original question. What does freedom, liberty, and our personal rights have to do with Jesus? Here's the answer that I've come to. Nothing. Nothing. Which means that while I might believe that God gives me freedom or he gives me liberty or we live in this place where we are so fortunate and blessed to have the freedoms that we have, my job is no different than the job of the apostles, which is that in every moment my job is not to preach what I should be able to do or what I can do or what God is allowing me to do, but my job, no matter what I say, is to speak of Jesus Christ who gave up everything for me. And that if I am going to live like Jesus, it does not mean that I claim my rights and a seat of power somewhere. It means that I give up all things so that the gospel must be go out. And, and if I suffer because of it, I rejoice because Jesus suffered so that others might find life. And maybe through my suffering or giving up, others will find life in Jesus Christ. Because what God is doing in the world is bigger than me. And it's bigger than you. May we in all moments, in all times, in all things, be about sharing who Jesus is to the world. And may we be willing to find joy when things start going wrong. Because maybe that means we're following the path of our Savior who suffered and died for us and changed the world in doing so.